Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. We as human beings are a restless bunch. You know, right from when you look at little children, they, I mean, they're a good number of them are often just restless. They just can't stay still. And then as human beings, we grow up and, you know, you get to school and towards the end of the school, you, you know, we tend to think, oh, I, I just can't wait for school to finish because then somehow, you know, things will be better and, you know, life will be a little bit more restful. And then you get into uni, and then you can't wait to finish uni, and because you think, oh, then, you know, life after uni will be much better and so much more restful. And then work starts, and then perhaps maybe some of you might get married, and then perhaps some of you might have children. And then as you're having children, you're thinking, oh, I just need some rest from my children. I, I just, in fact, just need even a few days of good night's rest. And then the children grow up and perhaps move out of the house and, and then it's emptiness syndrome, but the human being is still restless. And there's aches and pains of old age and maybe other struggles of life and there's still no rest. The message that we have before us this morning is going to remind us of not just some temporary rest that we long for from the time that we are little, but it's going to remind us of the ultimate rest that God provides for his people, a rest that is eternal, a rest that is F- that makes us, f- fills us with joy and happiness and peace and delight. Really, this rest, as we will see in this passage, if I were to just quickly summarize before we look into this text, it is the ultimate salvation that Christ Jesus will bring when he comes and establishes his kingdom and in every sense of the word we will be at rest with our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the author has written this book of Hebrews to Hebrew Christians. And they're facing a lot of unrest in their life. All kinds of pressures and trials and temptations and afflictions. And these trials, are, these unrest around them is causing them to take their eyes off Jesus. And they're in danger of wandering away from that path. And ultimately, they're in danger of not reaching this glorious destination of rest. And so the 
author continues on his message to the Hebrews to encourage these Christians and encourage us as Christians to continue to strive on. Now, if you remember last week, there's a way in which the author did that, and he picked up on Psalm 95. And using Psalm 95, he, he quoted that to a large extent, the second half of Psalm 95. And then he talked about the implications of that, what it meant for the Israelite generation and what it means for his hearers. And you could say that was a strong warning. And there's a sense in which he, uh, it was a negative warning, so to speak, where it was meant to shock us, jolt us to th- to cause us to think of where we are so that we could continue to persevere on in our faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in this chapter, in chapter 4, he's going to pick up Psalm 95 again and he's going to keep quoting it again. And his motivation is again to continue to help Christians persevere in their faith. But he's going to use a slightly different strategy. He's going to use encouragement now. The warning is more in this form of this hope, this hope of eternal rest that God has promised. That it's not just, if last chapter was, you're going to turn away from the living God and face eternal damnation. In chapter four, he's going to say, no, what you're going to miss out is this glorious rest. It's a wonderful rest that God has prepared for his people. So don't quit, keep persevering. So you could almost think of it as a a stick and a carrot. If last week was the stick, today is going to be the carrot that the author is going to use to motivate his readers to continue to persevere on. So the title of this sermon, I've titled this as the promise rest of God, and we're going to look at this under three headings. Verses 1 to 2, we're going to look at the gracious warning. In verses 3 to 10, we're going to look at the glorious explanation. And then lastly, in verse 11, we're going to look at the concluding exhortation. That's in verse 11. And really, structurally, it it's, it's sort of like he has this exhortation or warning at the two ends, these two commands at the start and the finish, verse 1 and verse 11. And this middle section is where he then elaborates the hope of this rest that remains for his people. So just in following that structure too, uh, we're going to spend most of our time or the majority of our time in, the second, in our second point, Uh, but we'll also look at points one and two as well. So the promise of God's rest. And so firstly, the gracious warning regarding God's promise of rest. Verses one and two. He says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
So the author is again going back to that example of Israelites who wandered in the wilderness as mentioned in Psalm 95. Now when you think about them again, these Israelites, they started out so well. You know, God had raised up a deliverer named Moses. And they heard the good news that God would rescue them from slavery in Egypt and that they would be brought to the promised land. That was the good news that they had heard. And then God delivered them out of Egypt in a mighty way. And it seemed like they were truly trusting in the Lord and his promises and the good news that was given to them that they had heard. And then following deliverance from Egypt, God brought them into the wilderness and regularly God provided for them in the wilderness. But then bit by bit, they began to show that they did not trust the Lord for who he is and trust his promises or the good news that was given to them. In fact, what they regularly did was put the Lord to the test. And the significant point of their rebellion was when they were at the edge of the promised land of Canaan. God again assured them, saying, I I will be with you. You know, you take the land, it's yours, just trust me. In fact, used even Joshua and Caleb to reiterate that to them. But they didn't trust the Lord. They refused to obey the Lord and take the land. And so although they had started off so wonderfully, it seemed that way. It seemed like they were trusting the Lord with his good news. But ultimately, when they were at the edge of entering into the land, what we see is that only Caleb and Joshua and the next generation of Israelites ultimately enter the land after years of wandering in the wilderness. Why? Because the previous generation, they did not believe in God and his word. They did not believe the good news. They heard it, but they did not believe it. And the author's point is to his listeners, especially those who are tempted to turn away from following Jesus, is this. You too have heard the good news of God's final word through Jesus Christ. That Jesus, the Son of God, took on our flesh and that he suffered and died on that cross, taking our place on the cross, and that he rose from the dead and now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day he will come back to establish his kingdom on earth and he will make this world anew. You have heard this good news. What he's saying is, it's not enough to just hear the good news. But you must respond in faith and in obedience if you are to reach your final destination of ultimate rest. What he's saying is that we must trust in Jesus and his work And that will show in the way that we obey his voice and we truly follow him and not abandon him. And so in light of that, the author's gracious warning is therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. 
He's saying, be fearful of the fact that, you know, we could be hearers of God's word and not doers and not be obedient to God's word. Be fearful of the fact that, that we would not respond in unbelief and hardness of heart to God's word and his promises and his warnings. Be fearful that your heart may have those tendencies. In other words, he's saying, don't take these promises and warnings from the Lord lightly like what the Israelites did. No, take it seriously. And why is he doing this? So that you can be encouraged to persevere in your faith. You know, this fear that the author is exhorting us to, you know, this is not some kind of paralyzing fear. You know, think of when you were a little child. And your parents or some other adult told you what would happen to you if you simply just ran across the road without looking left or right. You know, almost every parent will do that at some point with their child. And they don't do that because they want the child to be petrified of ever crossing the road so that they will never cross the road. That's not the point of explaining what will happen if you just simply run across the road without looking left or right. No, the parent will do this so that the child has a right kind of healthy fear. So that the child would be aware of the realities of crossing the road carelessly. Why? Not so that they would be ever scared of crossing the road, but they would be aware of the dangers and they would be careful in crossing the road. Similarly, the author is saying, let us fear. Or in other words, let's not be careless about God's promises and warnings. Let's take it seriously and then persevere lest we fail to enter the promise of rest. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, so does that mean then I can lose my salvation? I mean, I I thought we can never lose our salvation. Well, I would say to you, yes, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will never lose your salvation. John 10, 28 and 29, for example, where Jesus himself says, talking about his disciples, true believers, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. It's almost like there's a double security. It's like Jesus is holding his people in his hands and then on top of that, then God the Father is holding the people in his hands. There's a double security there. So it's impossible for a believer to lose their salvation. But then that does not take away the responsibility of every believer to persevere in the faith. The way that God's people persevere is by using the means that God has provided to keep them going. Let me give you another illustration. If you are driving a car and you saw a road sign that said, 
cliff ahead in 200 meters, turn right. The person who follows the road sign and turns right, you would say, is the person who believes in that warning, in that road sign. That's why he turned right, and that's why he didn't fall off the cliff. But the person who doesn't take the sign seriously and doesn't follow it will, the, will be eventually the person who will fall off the cliff. And it shows that this person didn't believe in that sign or that warning. So similarly, spiritually speaking, an unbeliever would never heed the warnings and the promises of Scripture. But a person who proves, but a person proves they're a believer if they continue to heed God's word of promises and warnings and live their life accordingly right till the very end. An unbeliever would never heed these warnings, never heed the promises. And so in this way, as a believer heeds God's word, its promises and its warnings, it becomes then one of the means by which God preserves the believer in the faith. So does that make sense? So it never means that only by doing these things, if you don't do these things, you will lose your salvation. If you don't listen to God's word, you will lose your salvation. That's not what it's saying. What it is saying is that if you don't listen to God's word, it proves you're an unbeliever. But if you listen to God's word, its promises, its warnings, it proves you're a believer and you will heed these things and it becomes the means by which God preserves the believer in the faith. And so the author says, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And so this becomes the means by which the believer is preserved. And so this warning is not meant to scare us, but it actually is a gracious thing saying, these will be some of the tendencies of your heart. Keep going straight. Heed my word. Now the failure of the wilderness generation of Israelites to enter the land, it didn't nullify God's promise of rest. It still stands. Now someone might ask, but what does this have to do with us? I mean, those Israelites, they missed out on entering that land. But what is it to do with us? You know, what are we going to miss out on? And now the author now sets out to explain what this rest actually means and that this rest is still available to all believers that persevere in the faith. And so this brings us to our second point, the glorious explanation in verses 3 to 10. Verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest... As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. See, the author wants to encourage believers to persevere and what is their end. And so he says, believers are the ones who enter that rest. But as God has said previously, those who don't believe, they will not enter my rest. So he's juxtaposing 
The two, those who are true believers will persevere and they will enter the rest of God. But as he has said previously, those who don't believe will not enter my rest. Now notice there with this quote from Psalm 95, it says, not enter your rest, but it says enter my rest. As in enter God's rest. Now the author is going to explain what he means by God's rest. What is this my rest talking about? And so he says, continuing on in verse 3, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, or to get the train of thought, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Now the author is alluding to Genesis 2 here. After six days of creation, God rested on the seventh day. Now God rested, not because after six days of creating this entire universe, you know, God was just tired and huffing and puffing and he's like, oh, I just need to take a break now, I, I just need to rest now. No, we, we know he's the almighty, all-powerful God. Scripture says God neither sleeps nor slumbers. Then what does it mean that God rested? Now we saw some of this as we went through Genesis 2, but I want to reiterate it here. Just look at Exodus 13, 17, because it adds something there that's not there in Genesis 2 as well, and it helps us understand God's rest. It says, in six days God created the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So the idea of God resting is that after making all of his creation, which was very good, he ceased from his creative work. He's not creating anything anymore. And that he enjoyed, he was refreshed and enjoyed and delighted in all of the creation that he had made that reflected his glory. That's the idea of God's rest. It's not just resting from his creative work, but it's also the idea of enjoyment of all of creation. But then in, if you go back to Genesis 2, it also tells us that God blessed the seventh day, this, this day of rest, and made it holy. And the reason that God sets apart or makes holy or sanctifies this day I want you to listen to this, is so that all creation could experience his blessing and give glory to God. Okay? So if you, again, this is all some of the repetition of what we did in Genesis 2. But for the first, first six days of creation, there was this repeated refrain at the end of the day where it would say, and there was evening and there was morning, first day. Second day, and there was evening, and there was morning. Second day. And, and that refrain would mark out the end of that particular day. But when you come to the seventh day, this day of rest, that refrain of there was evening and there was morning, it's not there. Why? Not because that wasn't a literal day as well, but it's, 
It's pointing to the fact that this day of rest was supposed to be continual. It was supposed to be perpetual. See, the reason God set this day of rest apart, he made it holy, is because this was meant to be the whole purpose of creation. That this is something that creation should have perpetually done as they were part of God's rest. And what is that? To glorify God and to enjoy God and the blessings of his perfect world in that perfect rest of God. This was meant to be the continual state of all of creation. I mean, we we know this from either through someone or through the Westminster Catechism that has made this known to others. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That idea of enjoying God and glorifying God, that started from Genesis 2 in God's rest, where all of creation was in perfect harmony and man was in perfect harmony with God, experiencing a perfect world. And so God set it apart so that all of creation could glorify God and enjoy him forever in that glorious rest of his. So that's the idea of all of creation being in God's rest, which is already established in Genesis 2. And it was meant to be ongoing. But then, the first man and the first woman, they disbelieved God's word. And they sinned and rebelled against God. And because of their sin, they plunged all of creation all of mankind that was in perfect harmony with God and with each other, enjoying God and glorifying God, that creation that was in perfect harmony in God's rest, when man sinned, he plunged all of creation into unrest. And all the chaos and the unrest in this world now is because of man's sin and rebellion. But the goal of his creation has always been that it would enter back into God's rest where all of creation can enjoy him and glorify him forever. That has been God's purpose for his creation from the beginning of time. And so God moves his plan forward as we even start in Genesis. As you keep going down, you see that God finally establishes a covenant with Noah. And perhaps some of you remember the name Noah itself means rest. Because Lamech, his father, thought perhaps this person will give us rest. They were expecting maybe, maybe this is the Redeemer who would come and give rest. And there's a temporary rest that is guaranteed in that Noah covenant so that all creation now would not destroy itself. There are certain parameters that God establishes in that Noah covenant. So there's a temporary rest there in that covenant. Then you come to Genesis 12. And then God establishes another covenant with Abraham. And where he says that all the nations will be blessed 
But if you track what Genesis has been saying up till then, this concept of blessing, it goes all the way back to the creation blessing. The blessing of God experienced at creation in the Garden of Eden. So it's alluding to the fact that even though there is unrest and chaos right now, that God is going to bring rest and God is going to bring blessing to all nations like it was at the beginning. So the Abrahamic covenant is now again pushing forward God's agenda of promised rest. That this blessing of God will come to all nations and not the curse of God. And then by the time you come to the nation of Israel, God establishes another covenant with this nation. That's the Mosaic covenant. In fact, as part of this covenant, one of the Ten Commandments, remember, it is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. They were to work for six days, and then on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, they were to rest. And this was patterned after God's work of creation for six days and his resting on the seventh day. And really, as the Israelites observed this, they were essentially saying God's agenda of rest is still a reality. Someday we're going to come back into this rest of God. But right now it's broken. And we can't get into it. And then many years later, God makes yet another covenant with King David in 2 Samuel 7. And then even there, God promises rest through this covenant. That you will have rest from your enemies, he promises David and his descendants through this covenant. But the ironic thing is, at this point, David is already in the land and he has rest from his enemies. So what is he talking about? He's talking about a greater rest, an ultimate rest, an end time rest that God will bring. And this is what then the prophets then take and expand on this. In fact, you know, during the time of King Solomon as well, David's son, there was also rest in the land. And in 1 Kings 4.25, it says that every man was under his vine and under his fig tree. You know, this is to signify the, the rest and the abundance and the joy and the blessing of, of rest, this idea of being under the vine and under the fig tree. That's what it's signifying. And you know, then the prophets pick up this language in Micah 4.4, for example, or then again in Zechariah 3.10, where again they pick up this language of everyone sitting under the vine and under the fig tree. What is this pointing to? What are they talking about? They're talking about this end time rest that God is going to bring, which will be even greater than the rest that was there during the time of Solomon, where everyone will sit under the vine and under the fig tree. And so when you think about all this, this end time rest that God will bring, it's really the ultimate salvation that is to come what the author of Hebrews has already been speaking about. Remember in Hebrews 1, he said that when Jesus will return, he will establish God's kingdom. And, what will that, and he will make a new world, remember? He will fold the old world like a, 
almost like a t-shirt and he'll make a new world. And in that new kingdom, there will be righteousness and there will be joy and there will be vines in that place. What is that? What is that end time world? That is essentially the end time rest where he will bring all of his people and all of his creation into. Jesus will accomplish this. This in this new world that he's going to bring. And so, I want you to keep that in mind. So now what the author is saying is God's rest is available for those who trust and follow Jesus. And this rest was something that God established at the end of creation week. And even though currently creation is not in rest, this has always been God's plan. That's what the author is alluding to, the author of Hebrews is alluding to. And now the author continues. Verse 5. And again in this passage, he said, I'm going to quote again from Psalm 95, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What he's saying is that the promise of entering God's rest was available to the wilderness generation. But they didn't believe God. They rebelled against God. And God swore that they would not enter his rest. But that doesn't mean God's purpose for his people to enter his rest has come to an end with that generation. Oh no, God's purposes and plans are still moving forward. There is still a possibility for God's people to enter his rest. And which is why many years later, after this incident with the Israelites, many years later when there's David, David wrote to his people through Psalm 95. And David says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Meaning there's now a new opportunity to enter God's rest. Today, as in David's day. So that opportunity to enter God's rest didn't end with that previous generation of Israelites. It is still ongoing. And he adds to his reason saying, Verse 8, for as Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. See, this is now the next generation. So not the wilderness generation that died. But the next generation, Joshua led that generation into the land of promise. And the people had rest from their enemies, but it was not the full and final rest that God intended. Because otherwise, God through David would not have talked about an other opportunity to enter the rest of God when the Israelites are now already in the land. And here's the reality, that while there was some rest provided through Joshua leading the people into the land, Joshua still failed. 
See, because they did not wipe out all the enemies in the land like God had commanded them to. And so that rest that they enjoyed was short-lived and there was unrest again. And the people of God continue over time to disobey and turn away from the Lord to the point where finally they are exiled from the land. And so then the author says in verse 9, So then, having proven that God's rest is still available for his people, he says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the author is saying entering into God's rest is still a reality and it's a future reality. And that when you enter into God's rest, you will rest from your labors. Your works on earth would have been completed then. Or as one commentator said, the time of labor and struggles has ended and believers enjoy their eternal inheritance. End quote. Meaning all the difficulties of living the Christian life in this world and persevering through that by faith, It will all come to an end and the enjoyment of God's rest will begin and continue on into eternity. That is available for all those who are true believers. When will this happen? This will happen when we die and when Christ returns. You know, in fact, when the author says there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, that term there, Sabbath rest, it's really a term that says Sabbath celebration. The idea of celebrating and and rejoicing in entering God's rest and being in that state forever. That's what is the destiny of every believer. Rest from his labors and final joy into the rest of God. You know, but I want to say, you know, every time that we even gather as God's people here and every other local body that gathers, there's a sense in which we, we get something of a foretaste of that, of that glorious rest that God is going to bring that we will enjoy forever. Because, and, and there's a way in which this gathering prepares us and fuels our hope by giving us that foretaste of what heaven will be like. Now, for example, when we sing together, even as we sung this morning. And we lift our voices together as one, young and old, even as you know, Paul was encouraging all of you all, even lovely listening to some of the children singing and giving praise to God. But when we sing together congregationally like this and lift our voices together as one people, As one people of God, we are preparing for what we will do in eternity one day. 
where we will be gathered around God's throne and people from every tribe and tongue and nation will come together, singing together, lifting our voices to our dear Lord and Savior singing, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And then every time we take part from the Lord's table, and as we celebrate this feast, and we look back at what Christ has done in the past, and we find our joy in him, yeah, it's not about me, my sins have been forgiven. It is all about Christ, and our joy is renewed, and our hope in him is renewed. We're being prepared then for that joy in heaven that joy in God's eternal kingdom that he will establish when Jesus will finally return. And we're getting a foretaste of it, an appetizer of what eternity will be like, even in the emblems that we share in. And then sermon after sermon that we hear from this pulpit, you hear about the glory of God that is displayed in the face of Christ. And all that is preparing us to to just keep going on, to persevere. Because one day we will see Jesus face to face and he will say to his children, well done, good and faithful servant. And he'll wipe away every tear from your eye and every struggle and every toil that you've had, he will wipe away This is preparing us for that day to keep us going on. And really when you think of, you know, when Christ will come and establish his kingdom and heaven is on earth, there will be an end to all our sorrow and suffering. No more tears, no more fears, no more anxieties, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain, no more affliction. No more persecution, no more heartaches, no more death, no more sin. No more allergies. Yes, no more allergies. And we will see Jesus face to face. And we will be with him forever in the rest of God, enjoying him and glorifying him forever as God intended from as it was in the garden. Aren't you longing for that day? I wonder if there's someone here who's listening who's not a believer and is not a Christian. And maybe you're still striving and you're restless. I want to tell you, friend, you will never find peace, never find any rest unless you turn to the Lord Jesus. And he can give you this rest that you are yearning for. Here's the reality of it. All of us are sinners and we don't deserve to enter God's rest. We come into this world as sinners, living a life of sin and rebellion against our good and great and holy maker. 
And so in every way, what we deserve is just damnation and separation from God and all that is good that he has prepared. But God, because he is gracious and merciful and loving, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this wilderness of this world, into the unrest of our world. And God the Son took on our frail flesh and entered into this broken world to taste our unrest and chaos. And then finally he died on the cross and he experienced the deepest and darkest unrest of it all as he hung on that cross bearing the sin of sinful people like you and me. And what is that deep and dark unrest? The wrath and judgment of God against sin. Why did he do that? So that all who would put their trust in Jesus would have eternal life and entry into this eternal rest of God. If you're here today, I want to call you to turn away from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you say you believe, then continue to turn away from your sin and continue to follow him because that is the evidence that you truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will take you to the end of this eternal rest. And so finally and lastly and briefly we come to the concluding exhortation in verse 11. The author says let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. See, the whole Christian life is moving toward this ultimate rest of God. But we're not there yet. And the journey is long and the way is hard. And maybe you've been tempted to give up on the journey. Maybe you've fallen on the wayside or you're just kind of thinking of perhaps even stopping. Maybe you've gone off track and you're pursuing rest elsewhere in other things where you will never find that rest. The word of God speaks to us today and he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Yes, we have to put in the effort in this Christian life. So now you might be thinking, okay, so is this saying, so it's by my works that I attain salvation? No, that's not what it's talking about. Christ has done it all. So what is this striving talking about? The striving to enter rest is essentially coming back to everything that the author has already said, holding fast to the confession and the hope without any hesitation and showing that Christ is our boast, that he is our everything, that he has done it all, and we're striving to hold on to him and trusting in him and trusting in his person and his work and what he will do. 
That is the only way you're going to enter. In fact, those who do hold on to Christ and those who heed God's word prove that they believe and they will enter this glorious rest of God. You know, what's interesting is back in verse 8, when it talks about Joshua, the name, and it says that Joshua didn't give them rest. The name Joshua and the name Jesus is spelt exactly the same way. So the original audience, as they're listening to this, the, the word in the Greek is Jesus. So all they're hearing is this Jesus that came at one point. He didn't give rest. He didn't give ultimate rest. But a, a new and greater Joshua has come. That is Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh. And he is the only one who can lead you into ultimate rest. So hold on to him. Strive to hold on to him. Believe in him. Hold on to his promises and his warnings. And that becomes the means by which he will take you to this rest. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that with the unrest in this world, we become restless. And so often we turn to other things other than our Lord Jesus Christ and other than your word. But thank you for your, your word where you're mercifully and graciously warning us and encouraging us to persevere on to continue to trust in you and your ways and that becomes the means by which you preserve us. Lord, we long for that day when we will enter into that ultimate rest. When this world will be made new and Christ will come and reign in this world and what a glorious and joyous and peaceful and wonderful thing it will be for us and it will be for the rest of eternity. Lord, would you help us even as we've listened to your word, to understand that this is where you are taking us. This is where Jesus is taking us. So help us to continue to hold on to him by faith all the way to the end. For his name's sake we pray all this. Amen.